0: This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care.
1: Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive
2: and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And PK, we're going to be joined soon by Peter Harcher, who's the political and international editor for The Age and the City Morning Herald, which is good because we can talk to him about this escalation in tensions this week between Australia and China since that tweet that's yeah. gone global. That tweet,
1: which we'll get to. But before we do, let's go back to the event which prompted the tweet, the Brereton report into alleged war crimes by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan, because there's been some developments on this too. So when that report was released, the Chief of Defence, of the Defence Force said the meritorious citation awards to the Special Operations Group Task Force would be revoked for all 3,000 troops who'd received it, right? At that time, when that was said, the move was actually backed, cautiously, but backed by the government, by the Minister for Veterans Affairs and the former SAS soldier and head of the Intelligence and Security Committee, Andrew Hastie, uh, who pointed out that collective punishment is a feature of the armed forces. So the the argument being, okay, I, I spoke to Darren Chester that night that the report was released, and he said, it's tough, but you know, on balance, has yeah. to be accepted. That was that was their tune. Then. There was a huge backlash, huge, from veterans and, uh, you know, people in the community saying it's not fair for the innocent people who will lose their citation on the basis of this report, who didn't do anything, you know, soldiers who didn't, you know, are hmm. not implicated. And so the government changed its tune. What do you make of the way this has played out, Fran?
2: Well, it's perplexing, really, because the whole event—the uh, the rollout of the report, the release of it—seemed pretty choreographed. I mean, the, the Prime Minister and the Defence Minister stood up just prior to the release and, you know, laid out how the government was going to respond for it. The, to it, the special prosecutor be put in place, um, the oversight committee, and then we had the Chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell, stand up and say defence would accept all 140 recommendations, including this one. In fact, he said that he would be writing to the Governor General to re- recommend that this citation, uh, unit citation award be revoked. As you say, huge backlash. Some members of that unit objected, pointing out they weren't implicated in the 23 incidents that Justice Burden identified as possible war crimes. so why should they lose their citation? A petition was launched. It quickly gathered 55,000 signatures. Jackie Lambie joined in the clamour. She called for the Chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell, to be sacked over this. So a real head of steam. And within more than a week later, The Prime Minister weighed in. He made it pretty clear publicly he didn't want this award revoked for all. He pointed out that under the Constitution it's the Prime Minister who recommends actions to the Governor-General. So that was pretty clear. Code for you're out of line CDF and you might rethink this and then lo and behold a few days later the position from the Defence now seems to be all recommendations were given due consideration. So in less than two weeks a blanket acceptance uh, of of the implementation of all 140 recommendations from the independent Brereton Report had been watered down to a consideration and so while it might be the right outcome to take another look at this, one danger I see PK, well two really, one is that, you know, a potential undermining of Angus Campbell's authority as Chief of the Defence Force with all these people now calling for his head but also the optics of our Defence Force potentially watering down their response to some of Justice Breton's recommendations.
1: Yeah, I worry about those elements too and the other part is, we talk about the war gaming um, you know, interesting use of words there, but mm. that that this was very much orchestrated and it was. This redacted report was poured over. The government knew what was coming. I mean, you know, it is a it was a, a release. You would have thought that they would have anticipated this backlash. So if they were making this recommendation, they knew that if they were to support it, which they did initially, that they would then have to go out and argue why it was important to stick with it to just backflip like that and not anticipate the backlash, I find quite strange because, of course, you get the backlash. I yeah. mean, you can understand it. It's reasonable, the, the argument that why should there be collective punishment when some people are innocent? If I'd received an award and I knew I'd done nothing but good work, I'd feel aggrieved. Like, that's a it's a natural human response. You'd think, I, I wasn't part of that. I didn't do the wrong thing. So I understand why we've seen this response. I don't understand how they didn't see it coming, and I don't understand why they backflip so quickly. Uh, and so I think, I, I don't know, uh, is it conspiracy or cock up? I think it's just a bit of incompetence. I can't see it in as any other way. But I think the I think it's populist in to in one degree. But how did they not know it was coming? Like mm-hmm. I'm still really confused about that. Is was the ineptitude there? Of course it was coming. How could you? How could it not come? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh of no, I understand. There was going to be a I think it's
2: probably a popular move from the prime minister. But as I say, I think it leaves the chief the chief of the defence force looking exposed. Yeah, and that response
1: from Jackie Lambie, who was probably the most strident, and there were other sort of rebukes as well, on the Chief of the Defence Force, I thought personally was um, extreme and, and over the top. I think he has done actually quite a considered and decent job of dealing yeah. with a very difficult issue um, and and tried to bring about cultural change, tried to send the message to the community that we will take this seriously, that we will not participate in war crimes and then try to sweep them under the carpet. I, I give him actually full credit for that. Uh, that's not to say, he you know, you can't critique him on other things or that he can't be critiqued. Don't get me wrong. I think people are entitled to do that. But I think he's handled this on balance quite well.
2: And PK, there was some more uproar in this area of of defence too. Um, The the feeling that, you know, all of this, the the negative news, the horrific news, the allegations, all of that are going to have a a major impact on the mental health of uh, some of our veterans and some of their families. Um, The government Prior to this anyway, nothing to do with this, had created or put forward a bill to create a national commissioner into veteran suicide because it remains an ongoing real issue of concern. Um the, the mental health and well being of our veterans and families of veterans who died by suicide are now saying, Well, a national commissioner is not what we want. We wanted a Royal Commissioner, we still want a Royal Commissioner, and this is blown up again.
1: Yeah, and the way that this has now um Kind of advanced as a as a uh, as a debate is that the Labor Party has decided to back the call by Jackie Lambie for a royal commission, and that call, of course, is from the, the veterans' families who've been calling for that royal commission, rather than the government strategy, which is to create this national commissioner into veterans' suicide. So there is quite a bit of pressure now on the government to say the approach that they've taken is not. Serious or significant enough. Jackie Lambie came on my show this week and made the point that we've had a royal commission into pink bats. We've had royal commissions, you know, she kind of listed them, but we're not taking this very important issue, that the, the suicide of veterans, seriously enough and that this national commissioner isn't good enough. So I do, do think that, you know, yes, as you made the very relevant point, it's separate to the Brereton inquiry, but it is on the same theme. It is about the way that we treat our. Um, our soldiers, particularly when they finish in their tours of duty, this is a very important issue and it really, I think upsets people that we are not managing this well as a country. Mm. And I think it's putting a lot of pressure on the Prime Minister, to be honest. I don't think this answer that they have is good enough for the veterans community. And given historically the sort of right side of politics, the centre-right, the coalition have really, um, you know, made made the point that they're the ones that are, you know, for the defence force. That's kind of the, the political optics. I think it's going to be a problem for them that they're not going harder on this.
2: Yeah, and PK. Against this backdrop, of course, uh, relations with our largest trading partner, China, have really deteriorated in the last week since we were together. On Friday, China announced tariffs on Australian wine imports of up to two hundred percent. Some of our wineries export export all of their wine, their whole wine crop. To China. So that would mean a 200% tariff on that, which would basically wipe them out, make it completely uncompetitive. Uh, That was the first thing. And then, of course, we got that tweet. That tweet from China's foreign ministry spokesperson showing a fake image of an Australian soldier murdering an Afghan child. It was offensive. The Prime Minister stood up
0: and spoke in the angriest of terms. Australia is seeking an apology from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from the Chinese government for this outrageous post. We are also seeking its removal immediately and have also contacted Twitter to take it down immediately.
2: Now, Pico, I don't think any of those things have happened yet, but the Prime Minister's language was unmistakable. He described this tweet as repugnant. There was a pretty quick response from the Chinese Foreign Ministry.
1: Australian soldiers killed in a black manner Afghan civilians, that is fact. The slithers sort of children, that is a fact. The Australian government should feel ashamed, don't
2: you think? A real escalation, PK.
1: Huge escalation and it really changes the game, I think, in terms of our deteriorating relationship with China. And I do think this is a marker. We're going to discuss this with our next guest, Peter Harcher, who joins us this week. He's an expert in all of this. But I do think this is a pivotal moment for our country. Yes, we've been talking for a long time on this podcast and more broadly on our programs about the worsening relationship. It's not a new story. But this provocative tweet and the way our Prime Minister responded, I think is a game changer and is is now essentially going to lead to really dramatic shifts in the way that we manage this relationship.
2: I think you're right, PK, and I think that means it's a perfect time to bring in our guest. <laughs> Peter Harcher,
1: political and international editor for The Edge and the City Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room.
0: Patricia, a pleasure to be here.
2: Hi, Peter. Peter, we've been talking about this tweet. We played a little bit of the. Um, we've heard a little bit of the prime minister's reaction to it. This was a tweet from a foreign ministry official. Should we presume it was sanctioned by the very top? And if so, why? What would be China's endgame here with this, knowing it would provoke outrage?
0: Yes, Fran. I think if there were any question about whether it were uh, sanctioned or not, uh, we were quickly informed by the fact that uh, Zhao Liang, who was the, the first guy to tweet it, uh, was supported the next day by his boss. Um, so that tells us that it was deliberate. Um, it's also consistent with what China has been doing uh, generally with a bunch of countries and in its general stance uh, since the pandemic, really. And on your question, why? So, you know, in other words, this is not an aberration. This is a new phase. um Xi Jinping has called it, the president of China has called it, uh, a phase of strategic opportunity. Uh, So he thinks that this moment is a chance for him, uh, with Trump in the White House, the US uh, in disarray at home with the pandemic, plus the political, general political confusion and chaos and division of the election, um, uh, for his grand vision to be pushed through. And his grand vision, he hasn't been shy about, Fran. He said, when he was first uh, made General Secretary of the Communist Party in 2012, he said in his speech that he said, I'm laying the, fo- the foundation for China to be able to take the initiative and assert dominance. So we, what we are now seeing is China asserting dominance. Mm-hmm.
1: The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, set a benchmark in that strong reaction demanding an apology that as far as I can see, unless I've missed something, he was really never going to get. So what was he trying to achieve there? Did he go too far, Peter Harcher?
0: Well, he did say that. um, And look, the Chinese Communist Party has achieved one uh, pretty important thing for their sort of tactical purposes this week with all this stuff. They've established what they call discourse control. So all week we've been talking about what they've been saying and doing to us which is a victory for them because it means we're not saying um, what they're doing in either Hong Kong or Xinjiang province Uh. where they're oppressing the Uyghurs. We're not complaining about anything else that they're doing. We're not complaining about the South China Sea. So this is, I mean, you know, we see this in domestic politics all the time, Um, one side trying to take uh, the initiative with the debate over the other. So you want the debate to
1: be on your terms,
0: basically? Precisely. And you know when Morrison uh, jumps on that and reacts, well they keep it going. Then they say, "Ha ha, you overreacted, gotcha," and then they just keep it going. And, and we can expect this to continue. This is not this is not um, a temporary thing. Um, the taunts, these sort of juvenile, um, unworthy taunts are just a larger part, they're an escalation, really, of the same pattern we've seen for two years, which began with a freeze on leader-to-leader contacts, then ministerial visits, then it's trade sanctions, then it's then it's more trade sanctions, and now it's juvenile taunts and insults like this. Yeah. Did Morrison go too far, was your question? Well, um, the second part of what he said was... Uh, so first he registers the outrage and says, you owe us an apology. So he's chalking up one on the board saying, you know, this is one one you owe us. And then the second part is, but we stand ready to resume uh, dialogue and work through the issues at any time, which is the substance of it. So I thought he actually, I mean, you know, he could, could he have been a little calmer? Yes. But you can see it from his point of view. He doesn't want to leave any room uh, to be accused of being weak on China and then being outflanked um, by, I don't know, Pauline Hansen or someone like that, who would then take the debate to um, a, a more divisive and less productive level.
2: I've been really struck by the competing interpretations and commentary um, in, in response to this this tweet and the Prime Minister's, uh, our Prime Minister's response. You know, uh, some are saying that China, ha- this has backfired on China because now it, what it's done is unite a global coalition of outrage around it and China looks rattled. Um, you know, because it's it, it's it's engaging in such childish schoolboy pranks. Why is it doing that? Why is it desperately trying to poke a reaction um, from Australia? Others are saying, other commentators suggesting that Australia is the one left looking rattled and weak by having our Prime Minister stoop to engaging with a relatively junior foreign ministry official talking about a tweet, you know, that that's not dignified, that he should have stayed a bit removed from it. And when asked, of course, condemn it, but really relegate it to what it was, which is is kind of nothing much. How, how can both things can't be true?
0: Oh, I don't know. You could, you could have both being true. You could have both of us being diminished by this exchange. Oh <laughs> Well, that's, that's possible. true. Um, but look, in the larger picture, so I think on a tactical level in terms of this week, them getting so-called discourse control and provoking the Prime Minister, you know, you can put that down if you want as a tactical victory for them, for the Chinese Communist Party. But it doesn't change the longer and larger picture, which is that ever since they've entered this uh, so-called wolf warrior phase Mm -hmm. from around March onwards uh, with the pandemic. Um, And just one background uh, sentence on that. So the reason he switched into that super aggressive mode was that he was under fire domestically and under pressure domestically because he'd bungled the outbreak of the virus, China was exposed to criticism uh, worldwide, and he dumped China and the world into a great recession. So he was trying to deflect the pressure at home, uh, to deflect it abroad, uh, and he's been doing that ever since. And that's this is an outgrowth of that. So in that in that tactical sense, you could maybe score them this week as a win, if you like, but in the strategic sense, so that you can you can win the battle but lose the war, and they are mm. losing this war, and they're losing it because. Uh, the world has woken up. There's no longer any way anybody can pretend that this is not an angry, assertive, uh, well, maybe not even angry, maybe just a, a, a paranoid and anxious and assertive, aggressive, great power pushing out against all limits and against all constraints. Um, so in that sense, we've the world has woken up partly at our expense, mm. um, but it, it has woken up. And we now see responses. Uh, Joe Biden has said he wants a summit of democracies next year. We now see, for example, the Quad, which is the four countries, are uh, the US, Japan, India, Australia. Um, for, for a decade, China has been saying, you mustn't do the Quad. The Quad's a joke. It's going to disappear like mm. foam on the ocean, they said. <laughs> now the Quad's a reality. And since the Indian government has invited Australia to join for its Malabar naval exercises, the Quad now has a military manifestation. So all these are hardenings across the world in response to China's aggression?
1: Look, of course, there's the trade dimension too, which is really the thing that makes, I think, Australian business very nervous. And we've already talked a little earlier, Fran and I, about sort of the wine decision, the the tariffs on wine. Now we're seeing what is a, a sort of a campaign to support Australian winemakers across the world too. Could this wine tariff backfire too? Or what are the sort of broader implications for that relationship and what do we do in that space?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? And and nobody predicted that um, that there would be a bit of a uh, an upwelling of sympathy for the Australian wine industry around the a world. Buy
2: Aussie wine campaign.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, our wine is
2: nice.
0: <laughs> well, you can't argue, and the Chinese people think so too. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, that's why the that's why they were buying so much. That nobody was buying it as an act of charity uh, to our wine industry. Although now some other countries' consumers <laughs> apparently are a nice gesture. It uh, won't solve the problem. Um, So, the larger problem is that uh, we walked into this situation. um, We shouldn't have allowed ourselves to become so vulnerable to any one country, much less an autocracy that uh, has been uh, outwardly hostile to us for at least three years now. So, that was our our imprudence, and now China's forcing our exporters to diversify. So, that's happening. Um, And in the meantime, what can you do about it? Well, okay, at the company level, it's hard, but You know, I see the barley industry is already adjusted and sending shipments elsewhere. The coal industry is trying to adjust, sending shipments elsewhere. Other commodities are less uh, easily tradable. Um, The federal government between now and probably, I'm guessing, February, March next year, there will be submissions to the cabinet on measures that the federal government can take specifically to help uh, sectors that are hit. They can't offer them direct subsidies because that's WTO inconsistent. And Australia wants to make sure it abides by the rules scrupulously, but there's a dozen other things that a government can do. But uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah,
2: but but Peter, they can do all those things, but there's no replacing a market as huge as China. I think it's like $200 billion worth of Australian exports into China. So yes, we must diversify. We should have done it earlier, probably started that earlier. But, you know, the reason is, the reason we're selling there is because those markets are so huge. And the OECD has pointed out already that, you know, tensions with China has the potential to reduce significantly our per capita GDP. So th- that's clear. Uh, what's co- also clear is China's, you know, prepared to use trade to um, Basically, beat us into submission. That that's clear too. So, what now can we do about it? We can't. We can do all those things you're talking about. We can build the global coalition of democracies. We can look at diversifying markets. But we need an ongoing trade relationship with China. Kevin Rudd's advice this week on seven thirty was: you know, our politicians, our political leaders need to um, do more and talk less. What what possible? What's going on behind the scenes? by our government to try and get Chinese ministers to take their calls because we had another one Dan Tian uh, again this week saying you know he's not being able to c- contact his his Chinese counterpart either so you know there seems to be no inroads being made here
0: No the pressure is escalating and not the other way around and this is a determined decision from Xi Jinping personally uh, that th- this is a test of Australia's will um, this country uh, is Believe it or not, I mean, we like to think of ourselves as um, small, puny and insignificant. But if you look at it from Xi Jinping's point of view, Australia has become uh, a threat to his ambitions because we have been acting as a ringleader of resistance. Uh, It was first, it was the foreign interference legislation. Then it was the Huawei decision. And finally, was the call for an independent inquiry into COVID. And on, on each of those three issues, other countries followed Australia's lead. Uh, And in the end, even China itself voted for an independent inquiry into COVID, Mm. although on a different model. So this is a problem. This is a Mm. problem for a man hellbent on demonstrating China's great power and pushing all obstacles aside. So this is a a moment he's decided to break Australia's will. The trade tariffs, the sanctions will remain and escalate. This will get worse, in my best guess. I mean, who knows? Until... Xi Jinping decides it's not working and it's in his interests to try something else. So is this going to be disruptive? Yes. A company's going to lose businesses, lose sales? Yes. Some companies probably have to shut down despite government assistance? Yes. Uh, what's the alternative? The alternative is that we kowtow, capitulate, and then uh, you are looking at maybe a generation, maybe longer, of subservience.
1: Uh, subservience is not the the road that I think both political major parties want to go down. Actually, there's a lot of bipartisanship, actually, at this particular moment, even though there's previously been, uh, you know, disagreement about how to handle it. But I think if you speak to both sides of politics of major parties, there is concern about China's rise and the way that they're managing it. I want to just right. talk Isn't to... Isn't that
0: right, Patricia? And this week, yeah. one of the other things that Chinese tweet achieved was to bring them Great unity to Australian <laughs> Parliament, which yeah, isn't I know, too easy to I achieve, noted but that they did too. That.
1: There was a much different time from Labor saying, hmm, good, it does seem pretty hard to manage this relationship. Uh, look, <laughs> let's talk about the domestic economy because we are technically out of recession, which is uh, well, Ooh. it's technical because if you're unemployed, I don't know if you'd be having a party and unemployment is still too high, but it is significant. GDP in the September quarter increased by an unexpected 3.3%. Uh, uh, the Treasurer says our economic recovery isn't dependent on China, Peter Harcher, and uh, clearly you know, coming out of lockdown, managing the virus well, which we have, pats on the back for us, I think all of us across the country, borders reopening, this is a good news story. Uh, and this is obviously come at the time when, you know, we're about to have the Christmas period opening borders, as I say, how significant were these numbers? I mean, I know it's just a technical change because people are still feeling it, but it is a big deal, isn't it, given the state of the rest of the world?
0: It's a big deal because it shows that we've, the Australian economy has recovered about half of the fall that it suffered at the beginning of the pandemic. So that's an important uh, you know point to know. And it has an important knock-on effect, which is to add to confidence. So the fact, as you just said, Patricia, that we can move freely around our cities and countries and streets again, that's tremendous for confidence. Then the news about vaccines, that's another big boost to confidence. Uh, The fact that the economy is gathering steam, another boost to confidence. And confidence is the currency, quite literally, of any economy, because nobody's going to spend or invest unless they've got confidence in the future. Um the word credit itself, it comes from the Latin word credere, which means to believe. You have to believe. If you don't believe, it is does like Tinkerbell, clap if you believe. Mm. If you don't believe, your economy's buggered. So it is important, it does have that effect. Uh, and in a sense, Freidenberg, you know, it's partly true, it, technically it's true that Australia doesn't depend on China for its economic recovery. But what it does depend on is what Freidenberg didn't go on to say, and that is this. Uh, response from the government to the downturn gets us through the next three months and maybe the next year. What about the next three years and the next 30? We see a complete absence of reform uh, from this government. We see more ambition from the states uh, than than some of the states than we see from the federal government. We've just ended three decades, a world-beating boom. The model was running out of puff for the last few years. The model needs to be reinvigorated, and that's what our future depends on.
2: Yeah, and that's still, as you say, what we didn't really see in the October budget. Peter, fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us again.
0: Pleasure, Fran. See ya. See you, Patricia.
2: The bells are ringing. That means it's time for Question Time. And this week's question comes from Kaylee. Hey, you two. Awesome to have you back. So good to hear you both together. Why have the press not savaged the government on robo-debt? Disgustingly ran, no accountability. Does this government take accountability for anything? If it wasn't for the States, COVID would be way worse. Nothing to do with the Fed. Scoma was going to the rugby, if you remember. I just feel there are so many disgusting decisions that affect so many that are not properly discussed and absolutely no repercussions. So sick of this. Okay, so this line I'm just going to
1: take up first: the that the press has not savaged the government on robo debt. I I kind of contest that. I think the press, or you know, the media more broadly, has questioned, savaged. You know, us, but I don't know if it's our job to savage, but it's certainly our, our job to question and um, bring to light facts. And the fact is that the government bungled robo debt big time. It's hurt a lot of people, and now they're paying a lot of compensation <laughs> for the fact that they uh, stuffed that up. I think we have given it a lot of coverage. I do think, though, the broader point that there is not enough accountability for stuff-ups is a relevant one. I don't think it just is about robo-debt, the point you make about whether – and it's not just this government, in my view. I think it's a succession of governments where there is not enough accountability. We've talked about it before, Fran – if you stuff up, you should take the fall. There should be a repercussion. There, there isn't. You know, there's, Everything almost seems survivable to me now. Um, and I think robodebt was a serious uh, problem and policy stuff up from this government. They say, oh, data matching has been used before, but the actual automation of it and then the failure to pivot to fix it earlier – was a big problem. It's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money. It's caused a lot of hurt. And I I think scrutiny should be applied. I think it has been applied. Why hasn't the government, um, you know, why hasn't anyone lost their job? Well, I don't know. Maybe they should have. And maybe they should have over other issues as well.
2: Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a big stuff up. $112 million will be paid out to people from compensation now, but the government hasn't really trumpeted that either. So you're right, all of this is sort of done begrudgingly. I do think under the Morrison government, um, accountability has really been sort of delegated to the background, if you like. This Prime Minister likes to move on. If he doesn't want to take a question on something, he just says, I'm not talking about that now, I'm going to move on. And we've seen that time and time again. Uh, Labor was very, very, angry at the end of last year about the Prime Minister, this Prime Minister refusing to accept debates in the Parliament on things, the government using its numbers to close down um, discussions and debates. You know, they're very unhappy with that. So I think it is an issue. Um, Scott Morrison much prefers to keep moving forward, shall we say. Yeah, <laughs> Funny that, Um, Prime Ministers who want to move past problems.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for the party room this week. We've enjoyed your company. I hope you've enjoyed ours. See you,
2: Fran. See you, PK.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.